Welcome back to Shnai Mikra, the OU podcast series on Parshat HaShavua. This is Menachem Niptag, and in today's show we continue our study of Parshat Matzei with Shlishi, the third Aliyah, beginning in Perak Lamed Gimel, Pasuk Nun, chapter 33, verse 50. God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu in the plains of Moab, which is on the Jordan River, opposite the city of Yericho. Why this location? is being mentioned when God speaks to Moshe Rabbeinu because God is about to command Moshe Rabbeinu in regard to the conquest of the land. And since they're going to cross the Jordan River and first conquer Yericho, it's meaningful to note where this commandment was given to Moshe. Even though Moshe is not going to fulfill this commandment, he has to pass this over to Yeshua and to the people. It's very meaningful that the actual commandment to conquer the land is given to Moshe in order that he give it to the nation. Pasuk Nunalif. Speak to the children of Israel and tell them and say to them, Ki atem ovrim Ki most likely here means when. When you pass over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, it's because they're about to cross the Jordan River now. He begins his commandment with this introduction. We should also note how the list of places that Bnei Israel traveled to from leaving Egypt in the first year until arriving at Avot Moab in the 40th year, forms a very fitting introduction to this commandment. Because here we find the commandment to conquer the land. This should have been what happened when we left Egypt in the first place. Therefore, we begin with coming out of Egypt. We go quickly listing our travel spots until Avot Moab. And now we continue that process with the conquest of the land. So let's see what the commandment is. Pasuk Nun Bet. What must you do? You must drive out all the inhabitants of the land in front of you. You should also destroy all of their temples or places of worship. All their molten images you must get rid of. And you must destroy all their high places where they worship the various gods. That is what you do to the idol worship and the places of idol worship. And now, in regard to settling the land, you shall conquer the land and settle it. Why? Because I'm giving you now this land in order for you to possess it. Now, a big question comes up. Is this a commandment for all generations or only a commandment for this generation? There appears to be a major argument among the commentators in this regard. But before we answer that question, let's continue reading and pay attention to the nature of this commandment. And then we'll go back and discuss whether this is a one-time commandment or is this an eternal commandment for all generations. After you possess the land and finish its conquest, then you must settle the land according to its different portions, according to the lottery, according to the family houses, and based on what ratio will you give out the different pieces of land, those families with a larger population, you give more of an inheritance, and those families which are smaller in population, you give a smaller inheritance. El asher lo shama hagoral lo Whatever comes out in this lottery, that's what will be his. The matot avotechem nechalu, based on the different family homes of your households, that's how you shall inherit the land. It seems like that this ratio of portioning the land is not between the tribes, but within the tribes. In other words, I don't think the total population of each of the tribes and divide up the entire land of Israel based on those population figures, but rather, within the borders of each tribe, I divide up the land 
within that tribe according to the family houses and the population figures. This must be because we see later on that the borders that the different tribes get is not in proportion to the relative populations. This also seems to be the case because we do this based on mishpachotechem and nashivtechem, based on your household families and not based on the size of the tribes. Now pay attention to Pasuk Mimhe, the verse 55, which will help us understand the nature of this command. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those who remain are going to be like pins in your eyes and like thorn hedges in your sides. And they will harass you in the land that you're going now to settle. And it will be that that which I meant to do to them, I will have to do to you. Now the question arises among the commentators whether this last section, the last seven psukim, where God gives these instructions to Moshe Rabbeinu in regard to conquering the land, is this a commandment for all generations or only a commandment for this generation? Rashi explains that God is giving Moshe Rabbeinu good advice to give to the people why it's worthwhile to do a good job conquering the land because if you do a lousy job not only will you have less land to live in those who remain will be like thorns in your sides and you'll have a hard time holding on to what you conquer if you don't conquer everything clearly this is a mitzvah for this generation and definitely good advice to make sure the conquest is complete and will be productive but do I apply this commandment to conquer the land for all generations the Rambam when he counts the mitzvot does not include this in one of the 613 laws. Different commentators on the Rambam give different reasons why he does not include it. The Ramban, Nachmanides, disagrees with the Rambam. And in his Hasagot, on the number of mitzvot that the Rambam counts, he says that the Rambam missed a mitzvah here, and this should be counted as a positive commandment to conquer the land of Israel. He also mentions this in his commentary on Sefer Bamidbar, on these psukim. However, I think it's important to make one clear distinction, which I think can explain the reason for the argument. One has to distinguish between the commandment to conquer the land and drive out the other nations, which is a one-time commandment for this generation, which there is a very easy reason to understand why, in contrast to the commandment to dwell in the land of Israel, to settle it, and to develop it, and not to leave it once it is conquered. Recall from Parshat Vayikra, in Perak Yudchet, in chapter 18, the opening commandment encourages Am Yisrael not to act like the Egyptians and not to act like the Canaanites, that opening commandment followed by a list of arayot, a list of forbidden marital relationships, which include examples of incest, sleeping with animals, sleeping with parents, father sleeping with his daughter, a whole list of behavior which is disgusting. At the end of that list, Chumash tells us, Don't defile yourself with this behavior. Because this is the behavior of the nations in the land and I'm throwing those nations out before you. They defile the land and I'm punishing the land because of that behavior. And then God encourages us, you keep my laws and don't copy this behavior that those nations did. Because all these abominations is what the people living the land were doing before you. And they defiled the land. In order that the land not kick you out, should you defile it, just like it kicked out the nation that was there before you. 
Because anyone who does this behavior in the land, God will cut them off and throw them out. Chumash goes out of its way to tell us how decadent the behavior was of the nations of Canaan, and that the reason why he's throwing them out is because of their bad behavior. In other words, we are not throwing them out because they're living in our land. The land is called the land of Canaan. From the beginning of Sefer Breshit, it's referred to as the land of the Canaanites. As the first Rashi and Chumash explains, the reason why God gave us Sefer Breshit is to let us know that the land belongs to God, and He gives it to His ever-worthy. And even in the covenant God made with Avram Avinu, in chapter 15 in Breshit, in Brit Ben Abtarim, He explains to Avram Avinu, I can't give you the land right away. You can't inherit the land until the Emirates living there have sinned to such a point that they deserve to be thrown out. So there can't be an obligation to kick out any non-Jew living in the land just because he's in the land. It's only a one-time command to that generation, which God now commands them pretty much to be his executor. Now that God has decided the nations of Canaan deserve to be killed, God could have killed them with some type of a plague. He could have brought a flood. Instead, he uses his people to drive them out in punishment for their sins. But by doing so, that is supposed to cause a moral sensitivity to the nation now that's going to take over because they have to be aware, should they act in that manner, they may face the exact same fate. This is an important thematic point because we cannot reach a conclusion from Chumash that any non-Jew living in the land of Israel, we have an obligation or not even the right to throw them out. If there's a divine command by God or through a Navi that a certain nation or group of people needs to be destroyed, we have to follow that. This was a one-time command for the generation coming out of Egypt and entering the land of Israel. But that commandment does not apply for all generations. However, once the land is conquered and we have sovereignty in that land, then there's definitely a positive commandment to settle the land, to stay in the land, to develop it, and not to give it away to anybody else. Chumash is hoping that once the land is conquered the first time around, there will not be a need to conquer it once again. Ideally, Am Yisrael should take the land that God gave them, settle it, and remain there forever. Chumash does bring up the possibility that should we sin, God may throw us out of our land in punishment and for the purpose of rehabilitation. And he also promises that no matter how long we're in exile for, one day he'll bring us back. But when he brings us back, God will create a political situation that will allow us to return. However, once we do go into exile, there does not remain a positive commandment that the nation of Israel has to conquer the land of Israel on their own initiative. And that could be the meaning of the Gemara in the end of Masechet Tuvot that talks about the three Shavuot of Shaloyi Lubachoma, that as a nation, we're not supposed to leave exile and come and conquer the land before God tells us the time is right. Now the question arises later on, how do we know when God tells us the time is right? That's more for discussion about modern day Zionism, which is beyond the scope of our Shnai Mikra. I simply wanted to point out why we can't learn from here that this is a mitzvah for all generations to conquer the land. However, as Ramban explains, it definitely can be a mitzvah to remain in the land and keep our sovereignty once it's under our control. Ramban also points out, like he does in many mitzvot that he counts that the Rambam didn't, is that it must be a mitzvah to settle the land and develop it. And if it wasn't for the Pasuk here, I would bring a Pasuk somewhere else. The same thing he does when he talks about the mitzvah of Lashon Hara. And the Pasuk, remember what God did to Miriam in Sefer Dvarim, the Ramban counts that as a mitzvah to say, to remember not to speak Lashon Hara. And he says, if it wasn't for this Pasuk, I'd find another Pasuk. There's certain themes which Ramban understands are so basic to Chumash that it has to be a mitzvah to say. Finding which Pasuk we attach it to, that's a technical problem. 
And there the Ramban is definitely correct that if you read Chumash, there must be a commandment. It's clear that God wants us to live in the land and settle it. That's why He set the land aside for us since the time of Avram Avinu. However, the land doesn't belong to us. It's God's responsibility to create a political situation that enables us to conquer the land. Once we have the land, again, we must settle it and develop it. However, the question, if we have the obligation or even the right to conquer it from other people for no reason other than the fact that they're in our land in the meantime, that we cannot infer from these psukim. Let's continue now with Perak Lamadalad, where we're going to find the borders of the land of Canaan that Bnei Israel are commanded to conquer. Chapter 34, Pasuk Aleph, verse 1. By Daber Adonai Moshe Lemor, God spoke to Moshe saying, Tzavet Bnei Israel v'martan lehem, command Bnei Israel and tell them, Ki atem baim el Eretz Canaan, when you come to the land of Canaan, zot ha'aretz asher tipol lechem benachala, this is a land that you have to take as an inheritance, Eretz Canaan ligvulotah, the land of Canaan according to its borders. Now a big question arises here, what are the borders of Eretz Canaan? The first time we find them in Chumash was back in chapter 10, when we divide up civilization between the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Among the children of Ham, we find Canaan. As we know, Ham is the father of Canaan. And among the children of Canaan, we find most of the seven nations. But when Chumash introduces the family of Canaan in chapter 10 in Breshit, we read in Perak Tet, Pasek Yutet, as follows, Vahi gvula Knani mitzidon bulacha gara adaza. We see that the border of Canaan is from the port city of Tzidon in Lebanon, a little bit north of Rosh Hashanikra today, going down the coastal plain to Aza, or the area of the Gaza Strip. That's the western border. And then on the eastern border, going down most probably along the Jordan River from the area of Tel Dan, and ending up in the area of Zdom at the bottom of the Dead Sea. That pretty much is parallel to the area from north to south, from Dan to Beersheba, which have always been the biblical borders of the people of Israel. They're mentioned in Sefer Melachim in the time of Shlomo, that Am Yisrael is living from Dan to Beersheba, military control, much farther to the north and to the south. And between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea is the borders of Canaan from east to west. The borders which we're going to find now in Parshat Masay are quite parallel. We also know that God promised the land to Avram Avinu from Nahar Mitzrayim to Nahar Prat. That's from the Nile River in Egypt all the way to the Euphrates River. And we find that in Brit Ben Abtarim in chapter 15 in Bereshit. However, that can be understood not as borders, but as limits. In other words, Nahar Prat means the area of Mesopotamia. Nahar Mitzrayim means the area of Egypt. The land of Canaan that God is giving Avram Avinu is located in between Nahar Prat and Nahar Mitzrayim are located between Mesopotamia and Egypt, the two great centers of civilization. Avram Avinu is chosen to be the forefather of a nation that's going to have an effect on civilization, and therefore its location between these two great centers is strategically important. The kernel of Avram Avinu's land is in Canaan, which is on the crossroads between those two civilizations. Should the nation of Avram conquer the land of Canaan, they can expand their borders to the north and to the east and to the south, but not more than Mesopotamia and Egypt. And that would explain why first we have the borders of Canaan, which are rather small, and later on in Jewish history, if we're able to, we can expand our borders. Once we have the land of Canaan, we can expand outwards, and it has the halachic status of Eretz Yisrael. So let's see the borders now 
in Perak Lamedalad and see how they fit more or less the borders of Dante Beersheba and from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Pasuk Gimel, verse 3. The border would begin from the southern tip, from Midbartzin, which is by Edom, basically from the southern tip of the Dead Sea, which now forms the southeastern border of Israel, near its border with Edom. And now the southeastern border will be at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Now we have continued towards the west. The border passed, an area called Malak Rabim. There's an area called that in the middle of the Negev to this day. Whether it's the same spot or not, it's not clear. And then it goes to a place called Tzina, which is probably the site which gave me Bartzin its name. Probably not too far from Ofdat. Then it continued a little south of Kadesh Barnea. That's where um, Kadesh Barnea must be a little south of the Negev because from Kadesh Barnea we send the Maglim and they go up to Hebron. Then it passed an area called Chatzar Adar and to an area called Atzmona. There was Yishuv in Gush Katif named Atzmona, named after this spot on these borders. Then Asaba Gvub Me'atzmon Nachla Mitzrayim. And then the border went from Atzmon till Nachla Mitzrayim, Hayama, and it ended up in the Mediterranean Sea. Now Nachla Mitzrayim most likely is not Nahar Mitzrayim. In Chumash, and Nahar is a river that has lots of water all year long. And Nachal is more like a creek which has water some of the year. When there's a lot of rain in the winter, it can fill up with water, but a Nachal doesn't have water all year long. Most likely, Nachal Mitzrayim is Nachal El Arish. Most commentators identify Nachal Mitzrayim with that area, and therefore, the border ends up a little bit south of Gaza, but definitely not as far as Egypt itself. This border, which we just read, forms the southern border of Eretz Canaan, which is some 50 or so kilometers south of Beersheba. Now that we reach the Mediterranean Sea, the western border will be the Mediterranean. Of course, according to our enemies, the Mediterranean should be our eastern border, but we hold that it's our western border. Pasagvav, Ugvu Yam, the border now will be the sea. Vayalachem Hayam Agado, Ugvu, and therefore the Mediterranean Sea will be the border. Zeyelachem Gvu Yam, this will be the border of the sea. Vezeyelachem Gvu Tzafon, we go along our western border to the north. Now we have to find our northern border, the northwest corner. Along the Mediterranean coast, go up until Horahar, the mountain on top of a mountain. We have no idea which mountain that is. There's different opinions taking us from the area of, a little north of Tzidon, Mount Lebanon, all the way up into Turkey. In my own opinion, because these are the borders of Canaan, it can't be too much farther north than the Litani in the area of Tzidon because of the Pasuk we saw in Parshat Noach. And because we know that the northern border of Eretz Canaan is the area of Dan which is pretty much parallel to the area of Tzidon in Lebanon. From Harahar, the border goes around to a place called Lavo Hamat. Lavo Hamat is not Hamat, but an area on the way to Hamat. Hamat is a city in northern Syria, but it's a city on the Syro-African Rift, north of the Bekaa Valley. How would you get to that city? There has to be a crossroads where the Litani River, which goes east to west, meets the Syro-African Rift, which goes north-south. Lavo Hamat most likely is somewhere along that crossing point on the way to Hamat in the Sir-African Rift but way before we get to the city of Hamat. Which again could be something north of the area of Tel Dan probably somewhere in southern Lebanon today. And the end of the Gvul goes to a place called Tzadah. 
two places which we did not know where they are. This would be the northern border. We've reached now the northeast corner. Now we need an eastern border. Which was the northeast corner. Now we go down to the area of Shafam. The border goes down from Shafam to Rivla to the east of Ain. And then the border goes down and touches the upper shoulder of the Kinneret to the east. Here we have the first mention of the Kinneret in Tanakh. One looks at the lake from far away, it has the shape of a harp. A harp in Hebrew is a kinor. Once we reach the Kinneret, the border continues down the Syro African Rift, down the Jordan River, ending up by the Dead Sea. This will be the borders of your land all the way around. We ended up where we started, back at the Dead Sea. The western border is the sea. The southern border is a bit south of Beersheba. And the northern border, a bit north of Dan. And this would fit again the borders of Canaan that we saw in Parshat Noach. And also the historical borders in Tanakh of the people of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Pasuket Gimel. Vaitzav Moshe b'nei Yisrael lemor. Moshe now commands b'nei Yisrael saying, Zota aretz asher titnachalu ota begoral. This is the land that you have to portion out according to a lottery, that God has commanded now to give to the nine and a half tribes. Why only nine and a half and not all twelve? Because the tribes of Reuven, according to their family houses, and the tribes of God, according to their family houses, already took their inheritance. And also, the half tribe of Menashe also took their inheritance already. Therefore, the land that is left will be divided between the nine and a half that remain. The two and a half tribes took their inheritance on the other side of the Jordan to the east, better known as Trench Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which ends up near Yericho. That ends Shlishi, the third Aliyah. In the next Aliyah, we'll discuss who are the people who are going to be in charge of giving out this land to the different tribes.